You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry, and I've got a couple of things to go over before we get to this week's interview. Let's start off by talking about our wonderful sponsor, MailChimp. We use MailChimp here at Revision Path for our weekly and monthly newsletters, and setting up campaigns is a breeze. There are drag-and-drop templates, helpful resource guides, and they're always making updates and improvements. If you're looking to get started with email marketing, check them out. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up today for a free account. This week is the last week where you can vote for panels and presentations for South by Southwest 2015. We propose two presentations, Where Are the Black Designers for South by Southwest Interactive and Diversifying Design Education for South by Southwest EDU, and we need your help to make sure they're chosen for next year's event. Head over to revisionpath.com forward slash South by Southwest, that's S-X-S-W, and vote for our two presentations. Give us a thumbs up and leave a comment. Voting ends on September 5th at 11.59 p.m. Central Time. We're also giving away a $50 Amazon.com gift card as part of our contest leading up to our 50th interview. To enter, leave a rating and review for us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and send us your iTunes or Stitcher Radio name to mail at revisionpath.com. We'll choose one reviewer at random, and they'll receive the gift card. Links to our iTunes and Stitcher profiles are available on our homepage. Now let's get to this week's interview. I talked with Dr. Christopher Charles Stewart, an assistant professor of computer science at The Ohio State University. Here we go. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Dr. Christopher Charles Stewart. I'm an assistant professor at Ohio State University. Along with teaching computer science, I also do research on cloud computing systems and emerging workloads in the realm of cloud computing systems and internet services. All right. I want to talk about you know your research a little bit later, and you mentioned your professor at Ohio State University. Talk to me about what the academic environment is like. There. How are your students? Oh, the students are great. This is my first time at a very large university, so I didn't know what to expect when I arrived here in late 2009, but I have just been overwhelmed with the students at Ohio State. I think they are definitely top-class students. So the undergraduate students that I work with, they regularly end up at very top companies or top graduate schools, and they're just such hard workers. So that part has been definitely a pleasure. And my graduate students are just the same, always working toward the next project, trying to innovate, trying to create. Nice, nice. And now, so before you started teaching at Ohio State University. I know you got your PhD from Rochester Institute of Technology. Tell me about that. From the University of Rochester. University of Rochester, sorry. So that was fun. I mean, when I, I did my undergraduate work at Morehouse College, and when I left, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I felt like I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to understand computer science at a deeper level, and the University of Rochester really helped me with that. My advisor, Dr. Kai Shin, in a former life, he developed the Ask Jeeves search engine, 
Okay. That was one of the earlier search engines, one of the earlier popular search engines. And he was so influential in helping me understand how to reason about tech trends and how to understand at a very low level the influence, the interaction between architectures, operating systems, and then the types of workloads that we place on them, like internet services, etc. Now, we did an HBCU month back in June, so we were talking with, you know, designers and developers that uh, graduated from historically black colleges and universities. You say you had your undergrad at Morehouse. I know that not just based on the research, but because we're friends. We went there <laughs> at the same time. Uh, what was your time like at Morehouse? You know, looking back at it, I'm sad to say that I was very much a lab rat. I, <laughs> I didn't think of it as that at the time, but I spent a lot of time in the computer lab, and also I worked through college. So you know, probably the two more influential events or projects that I had during that time of my life, I remember working door-to-door doing newspaper sales at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to sort of to pay my way through Morehouse which was incredibly influential because let me tell you, it's the hardest job ever trying to show up at a stranger's door and get them to invest 50 to to $100 in a newspaper subscription that often they don't really want. Um, right. And then the other thing was, I remember my, my senior year of college at Morehouse, I built print server for our computer lab. At the time, we had a serial port connection uh, between the printer and one computer and everybody had to go to this one computer to print. And it was really my first, one of my first experiences for making something, a distributed system in production for for people. So this print server was a centralized server and custom design just using TCP sockets and I think it was Visual C++ at the time to allow people to print from any computer in the lab. and. Oh man, uh, you may remember all of the flack I caught from that. I mean, it was it well, worked I well. I was, yeah, I, I was working. I was working case. I was not case study. Um, work study. I was working work study at the computer science lab with uh, with Mrs. Banks, the secretary of the computer science department. So I remember that. Yeah. Very, very at the start, study. everyone loved it when it worked, and then when it people started. <laughs> then it started breaking, and oh, jeez. My friends were quite harsh about uh, <laughs> about that, but somehow through that experience, it really motivated me to, I learned I wanted to build real systems, and I wanted to work with distributed systems in particular. I, I really enjoyed that project. Nice. Let's talk about your, your research. I know one of the things that you're working on at The Ohio State University is the Reroute Lab. What's that? Uh, Reroute stands for Reroute stands for computer systems research that reaches out. So we do that in three ways. First, our student body, the students that work in my group, are really diverse. So we represent a group that isn't always captured by your classic computer systems research group. We are a group that includes, uh, obviously, minority students and professor, in, in this case, Students from international schools, but also students from schools that aren't historically considered tier one elite schools. So we really try to have a diverse body that gives us unique perspectives on the problems facing computer systems research. 
is one avenue in which we reach out. Second way in which we reach out is that we build systems that are impactful for people's lives. So, for instance, uh, one of our projects that uh, we've been working on for about a year and a half, and we actually just submitted for, for publication, is about building Jeopardy systems and using Jeopardy systems as a way to inspire eighth graders to consider computer science. Now, you may say, Jeopardy, hey, you know, I I think I could have built that after Programming 101. What's really unique about what we do is we approach it from the same direction as an IBM Watson. So we don't actually encode questions or answers into the system, but instead Mm -hmm. we store raw data, uh, often Wikipedia, just Wikipedia articles or novels. Uh, For instance, we have one category on Hunger Games where our system just searches through the raw text of the Hunger Games to identify answers to questions. Mm -hmm. And we use the system to actually reach out to these younger students. We'll we'll do competitions with eighth graders. We have a video on my website where in one particular competition, we, we beat a handful of eighth graders with our Jeopardy system, and they just loved it. So with with that research, was that sort of part of how you received the NSF Career Award? Yes. Did come from that research? Yes. So the NSF Career Award is based on a different project that we do that is based on sustainable computing, making the back end for Internet services more sustainable. That is to have a lower carbon footprint over the lifetime of, of the service. And the key idea there is... It's a simple idea, uh, but implementing it is is a challenge. But what we want to do is allow people that want their Facebook, their MySpace, et cetera, to be powered by clean energy. We want to allow those people to express that interest and then to automatically direct their requests to servers that are powered by clean energy. And we'd like to do that in a black box fashion so that we don't have to require a lot of support from the Facebook staff or the Bing staff, et cetera. This is what we call greening as a service. And so we've been reaching out by actually developing the product, what we call datagreening.com. It's a product, it's it's in beta mode right now, but this service acts as a proxy that automatically can direct your requests to places where clean energy is available and therefore reduce the carbon footprint of, of your your web browsing. Now, I think when most people think of, of, I guess, that term, carbon footprint, they're thinking of, you know, perhaps transit or, or something that, I guess, involves fossil fuels in some sort of way. I think they're thinking more along transportation and not necessarily computing. Is greening as a service something that is is really in demand? Like, what really constitutes the carbon footprint of someone's Internet usage? Well, you'd really be surprised how high the carbon footprint is for something as simple as browsing the web or email. For instance, at Ohio State, we maintain a little under a million email accounts between alumni, current students, and faculty and staff. The carbon footprint caused by the electricity, uh, which is often coal-powered here in Ohio, coal-powered here in Ohio, that carbon footprint exceeds the carbon footprint for small towns here in Ohio. That's just the electricity that's used. And often with 
internet services, because they have this electricity ends up being one of their primary costs, well, what do you do? You place your data centers in places where cheap electricity is available. Unfortunately, those places often are places that are powered by some of the dirtiest sources. So there's this trade-off, this challenge, where the Internet service providers sort of need the cheap, dirty energy to power the service servers cheaply to continue to provide Google Search for free, for instance, or uh, any other social networking site, et cetera, as a free service. But how can we do that in a way that, that is sustainable so that you know we're not running up carbon footprints for the next generation to deal with? Okay, okay. I think when you put it that way, that does... That makes more sense. It is that, that trade-off between cheap electricity but then dirty sources that that power it. What's some other research that you're working on? Well, what else do we have? So we have a collaboration with Nationwide Children's Hospital where we look to improve their ability to detect disease genes by giving them a simulation infrastructure so that they can understand the, the correlation between symptoms and genes that may be causing those symptoms. Uh, mm-hmm. We also have ongoing projects where we're looking at the back-end, the way that we distribute and place data on the, in back-end databases. So it turns out that if, if you don't do this wisely, you can quickly find a situation where just one or two of your servers are handling the majority of your workload, even though maybe you have hundreds of servers that have some piece of data spread across them in general. This is what's called data skew. And so we've been looking at some approaches to handle data skew, approaches to always make sure that response times are fast. For instance, you'd be surprised to find out that just a site like TripAdvisor, they can lose something like 1.2% of their revenue a year just by having an extra 500 millisecond delay in response times. Oh, wow. And so we've been looking at some techniques to make sure that political response times happen fast all the time. I can see how maybe for e-commerce sites and things like that, that's, uh, that's important. But I guess, like you say, over time, that does add up, you know, in terms of revenue costs and things like that. So let's talk about diversity, the big D diversity. I know that you do a lot of traveling for recruiting. Yes, I do, um, I do. How does that, I guess, how does that, you know, sort of recruitment process go? What sort of things do students need to know when it comes to computer science today? It's an incredibly competitive environment right now. And okay. one of the messages that I always preach is that it's important to start early and to prepare yourself as early as possible for any career path that you may be interested in. So I often preach to students that they should start taking practice GREs earlier, about a year earlier than most students start. They should take about an order of magnitude more than they actually do. That's on the side of preparation. On the side of life fulfillment, one of the other things that that I talk about when I go to these places, going the route of getting the PhD and going into research can be an incredibly fulfilling path. I gave a talk at our alma mater recently that was called Discover Yourself, Get a PhD. As you go through this process of forcing yourself 
to refine the ways in which you think, forcing yourself to be more rigorous in the way that you approach problems. Um, you find that it spills over into other aspects of your life, and you surprisingly can find additional life fulfillment in, in places that you wouldn't have expected. So one example I, I mentioned, I, I do a lot of work, a lot of my work involves a modeling aspect. For instance, some of my early work at Rochester was about predicting response times for internet services. This has been work that's been very well received. One of the side effects of that work is that in predicting response times, you, you come to understand what things cause very high response times for things like web search requests or pulling up a page on an e-commerce site. Those same things or some of those same factors actually cause delays in your own life and can be reasons why you end up being tardy. And in my talk, I talk about how I've learned to manage my own utilization levels. And one of the outcomes of that is that I have this great track record of delivering my daughter on time to school uh, <laughs> when it comes time. And, you know, little things like this, when you tell them they seem trite, but they, they really are impactful. They really can have a significant impact in improving life fulfillment, I think. That's interesting that, you know, kind of this research that you're doing on the the back end of internet services like you're discussing, also for you has like a real world impact in your everyday life. Definitely, definitely. I would say that, it, and it's not just the research, it's the approach to coming about the and finding the, it's not just the research conclusions, but it's the approach to getting those conclusions. It's the process. You, you can just repeat the same process in so many ways, in so many different aspects of life. It, it really is... Um, a valuable tool. That's why I, I always strongly recommend when I'm going out and I'm speaking at, say, a Morehouse or a Clark, or I also give a lot of talks at smaller liberal arts schools, another place where students aren't always exposed to research options. You know, it really is a fun and fulfilling approach to life when, when you can do this type of research. Now, when it comes to, I guess, sort of STEM fields, which, you know, STEM is an acronym for science, technology, engineering, mathematics. When it comes to increasing, you know, participation in the STEM field, that's a topic that has been pretty big over the past few years. One of the, I guess, more recent success stories that I remember is Dr. Kyla McMullen, who was the first black woman to graduate with a PhD in computer science from the University of Michigan. And one of the things that she mentioned is how isolating it felt for her because she had very few people to sort of turn to for uh, mentorship and things like that. What are some ways that you think we can increase diversity in the computer science, you know, I guess overall in STEM, but particularly in computer science because that's your discipline. What are some ways that we can increase diversity in that field given these kinds of challenges? Well, first let me say I think there are a lot of smart people that are working on exactly these problems. The National Science Foundation, in particular, has shown great leadership along this direction. And some of the things that they've targeted are, and, and I've tried to help with, are, for instance, the interest gap that arises right around 7th and 8th grade. So if you, for instance, were to just sit down with a group of 5th graders and ask them, hey, how, what are your interests in math? What are your interests in technology? Surprisingly, 
the responses that you would get would be uniform across the different types of subgroups that, that we tend to look at when we talk about underrepresentation in our field. Mm-hmm. That's in the fifth grade. If you take those exact same students and look at them in the ninth and tenth grade, you would begin to see large gaps uh, rise, especially across genders and also across minority and ethnic groups. So I think at a high level, one of the things the National Science Foundation has been trying to tackle is trying to figure out what happens in that middle range that causes the shift in interest. So one of the things that I do, as I mentioned earlier, we try to do outreach to at the 7th and 8th grade level quite a bit. So I Uh mentioned this online Jeopardy competition that we go out and we present to local schools and stuff and now that I think about it, seventh and eighth grade kind of falls right in line with, with sort of the beginning of adolescence and, and exactly, and all exactly. That sort of stuff. Some, I wonder if it's just if that's what attributes that shift. There may be some peer pressure issues there. There may also be some greater attention to the roles of the influence of role models at that stage as well, right? So now, if your parents have clearly defined roles that, for instance, say girls don't do math or some other people that you look up to, you may pay more attention to that around that age range as well. Mm -hmm. At the graduate school level, once you've gone through undergrad and and you're into grad school, I think it's just very important to have an open and welcoming environment where no one is treated specially because they come from a different group. And at the same time, the environment is open and is, is willing to consider thoughts that uniquely arise because, you, uh, because of your diversity and your, your, your unique experiences. Along those lines, I don't have great, great solutions myself. I just try to do the best that I can, right? So I, I, I think to a certain extent, there's just a need for, in, for faculty members and professors to engage and look for students that can enhance their group in ways that they may not traditionally look for. I think it's very important. Some of the ideas um, that come out can really enhance your perspective and enhance the the ways in which you you approach your research. So I I think those are probably the two directions that seem most promising right now, right? So Mm -hmm. commitment on, on, on the side of the faculty members and then also making sure that we can increase the pipeline going into colleges and then subsequently going into graduate schools as well. So speaking about the pipeline, let's let's focus back on you. Was an ingenuity towards technology always a, a big part of your childhood? How did you sort of get that that spark for computers and wanting to, to work with computers? Well, my dad was an electrician, so I think it started off with programming the VCR when I was six years old. And when I was in the sixth grade, I received a, my brother-in-law had a computer that was uh, passed, was about to be thrown away from his job, and he sort of gave this old 386 AST to me. And I learned uh, QBasic on this. Um, and from that moment on, I just loved, I loved the art of programming and the opportunity to create something with my mind that 
you could actually see and, and could actually have impact. So I've been programming for a while. I've, I've always been interested in, in this aspect. And over time, that interest developed into an interest in sort of the back end. Now, granted, I didn't, I didn't have programmers in my family, so for me, it's, it did not start with uh, automatically understanding that I wanted to build operating systems or mm-hmm. large complex systems like uh, distributed systems, etc. I remember my mom asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up one day, and I said, I want to make Microsoft Word. And looking back <laughs> at it, it's not Word itself, but it was this notion of the software that everybody uses that sort of underlies everything. For me at that time, all I could see was Word. But as I went through undergrad and then to grad school, you know, my, my interests were sharpened, and I was able to identify some fields, some subfields that, that really piqued my interest in particular. Did you have any mentors that really kind of helped you out along the way? Well, definitely. First, you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely. I, you know. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, we're peers, but at, at least for me, one of the things that's been important throughout, I'm always motivated by my peers, and especially the peers that are achieving and doing great things. So, I mean, I remember when we arrived at Morehouse, and and er, I think you and I were sitting next to each other while registering classes one time. And you were uh-huh. telling me about all of the great schools that you had gotten into, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and these types of things are important, right? Your peers really do shape, to a large extent, who you become. So, you, Charles Glover, um, in grad uh, school, yeah. in, in grad school, my friend Arvind Shriraman, others like that were incredibly influential. I mean, always forcing me to keep my foot on the gas to feel like. I could sort of keep up and do something similar at, at a similar level of, of excellence, I should say. The other mentors um, in the traditional sense that were, were very influential, um, I mean, there's obviously family members. My brother, who's a statistics PhD, and, and he helped me out tremendously. In terms of teachers, our old department chair, who you may remember, John Foster, was somebody that was very influential to me. He was a Stanford grad and just a very smart academic person by nature who I I wanted to understand more of who he was and that was one of the reasons why I chose grad school. My advisor Kai Shin, my co-advisor Michael Scott in grad school and even now I still look for mentorship in a number of places, a number of the communities that I interact in. For instance, here at Ohio State, Srini Parthasarathi is a professor who's given me tremendous help as Eric Fosslis were in the field in general. Um, I'm always getting getting really great advice from, from colleagues, et cetera, about just how to proceed. I No, I was saying it's somehow hard for me to think that I was that pretentious about mentioning other schools I had <laughs> <laughs> Is it really hard? Is it really hard? Well, well, I, mean, I think if we were in line for registration, I'm pretty sure it was I was probably complaining that we were in line or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, Morehouse has that unique aspect to it, right? I think it has, because it has several unique aspects. Because so many people, you know, so many people are, there are very, very smart, and and um, you, Charles, Topay, there are just I could go down the list of people that are so incredibly smart. I just 
when I whenever I mention their names, I'm I'm glad to be associated with them. But the first year when you get there with these very smart people that have made sort of a sacrifice, right? Because they've made a decision to go to this HBCU instead of other perhaps more traditionally recognized colleges. I, I personally feel like there's always a little bit of this academic, for lack of a better word, machismo that happens where everybody yeah. wants to establish their academic credentials right. early on, right? Hey, I could have gone here, but, but uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a it funny experience. So I can totally understand. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's one of those unique experiences that you can only get at Morehouse, I think. Morehouse, maybe a, a handful of other schools as well, but... I do remember it, and, and I think it's, it's an important part to, to the process. What's the most important thing that you've learned from your work? I've learned how to be a better communicator. Okay. There's a luminary in the computer architecture field, David Patterson. He's a professor at UC Berkeley. He has... Uh, I'm going to paraphrase a quote from him, but he says something along the lines of, you think it's hard to get people to, you, you think you don't want people to take your ideas and use them for something, use them for their own purposes. What's really hard is actually getting people to use your ideas. <laughs> mm -hmm. And over time, I've come to see exactly how true that statement is, right? In order to come up, for instance, with a research idea that really is something that people will adopt and begin to use in the real world, it requires a heck of a lot of study and a heck of a lot of patience and careful, careful discussion, or uh, as I just referenced earlier, careful, careful sales pitches, right? That's the part that I think is, is most beneficial and probably most impactful in terms of just life fulfillment. So now, for instance, my, my interactions with my wife are very different than my interactions with my wife before. I used to be this great debater. I feel like now I, <laughs> I, feel like now I, I tend to listen more and I tend to look for middle ground and simple explanations that people can accept more often. Are you where you wanted to be at at this stage in your life? I think so, definitely. Except it's awkward to say that in the sense that I still don't know. I, for the longest, I didn't know where I wanted to be at this stage of my life. So I will interpret that question to say, are you at a place that you are happy at this, this stage of your life? And I Yeah, we can say that. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely say that. I feel like... Day to day, I wake up and I'm very fortunate and blessed to have every day new challenges to address, challenges that are that make me a a more careful, a more thoughtful, and a more rigorous person. And so I appreciate that, and I appreciate that opportunity, realizing that that doesn't have to be the case. But I, I love that aspect of my job. Now let's switch gears a little bit more and talk about, you know, kind of you as a person. And we'll, we'll you know, kind of touch a little bit more on, on your work as well. But who has offered you kind of the most useful career advice? And what was that piece of advice? Career advice? That's a good one. Um, hmm. I should 
preface this by saying, once again, I get advice from many people. So uh, many people I, I view as mentors. I get advice from people sometimes directly by mm-hmm. explicitly requesting, sometimes indirectly by just carefully observing people and the career path that they've taken and the decisions they've made. And, you know, that observation subsequently becomes advice. But in terms of the question that you asked, I think I would say the most, the best example of explicit advice came from my sister. When I was first looking into colleges, I I remember when I was in high school, I wasn't as focused, for instance, as some of you, some of the elites at my alma mater, like yourself. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> so I... Yeah, I was focused on getting out of Alabama. That was on my focus. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember uh, when I first started looking at schools, I was looking at not always the best schools or not always schools that were targeted towards someone with my GPA and with the types of scores that I could get, and I was getting on the SAT and PSAT. And I remember explicitly one day, my sister sort of sat me down, and we were talking about this, and I said, look, I don't want to be like you, my sister, in her own right, a very accomplished person. So um, I don't always think that names mean accomplishments, but in this case, so she's Dartmouth grad, law school. She's worked for several top firms in, in law um, in the Bay Area. And so I was sort of intimidated and I was saying, I don't want to just, you know, be driven all the time to only go after these certain types of places, etc. And she said to me something along the lines of, I don't want you to be, I don't want your focus to be trying to get to any particular school, but I want you to focus on always pushing yourself to go to the very best places you can go and Mm -hmm. pushing yourself to do the best that you can do and giving yourself as many options as possible to do that your best in the places that would ultimately become best for you. And really that's motivated my decision-making ever since you shared that with me. And I would say it's, it's been probably the most influential advice that I've had, honestly, in my life as well as toward my career. Now, I know you kind of settled and firmly planted roots in Columbus. With, you know, you got your wife, you have two daughters. If you had to live somewhere else, though, where would it be? <laughs> well, I mean, this is a tech blog, so I... You don't have to to preface your answer with that. Well, I should probably say Silicon Valley, right? Because otherwise all of my friends in Silicon Valley would say, what are you talking about? This is the place to be. Well, I mean, (laughs) and to be clear, you're you're kind of technically from the area. You're from Richmond, so you're from the Bay. I am, I am. I'm from the... I I grew up in really all around the East Bay, so Oakland, Mm -hmm. Richmond, Panola area. I miss the Bay sometimes, so so I would definitely consider moving there. There are a few other hotspots that I like nowadays in terms of areas that are nice both for tech and also nice places to live. So I enjoy Pittsburgh. I enjoy Seattle, Portland. All of those places, I think, are good options. And, and of course, Toronto. Yeah, and with Pittsburgh, you've got Carnegie Mellon there, so that's a that's Carnegie a Mellon. Google also has a large, large base in Pittsburgh. Okay, Intel does has some stuff there too. 
Where do you see yourself in the next five years? In the next five years, I would like to be able to... I sort of think of my productivity along the scale of Moore's Law. So okay. In six years, it took, it took me about six years to create and do a PhD. And now, uh, coming up in about six years, I will have doubled that throughput. Actually, a little more than doubled it, so I'll produce roughly... 12 master's students and around three PhD students by that time. I'd like to double that efficiency again. So I'd, I'd like to produce about twice as many PhD students in the six years that follow after that. I'd like to become a more efficient communicator that is able to write papers, give talks more quickly, and reach a broader audience. So these are some of the, the technical skills that I would like to develop over that time. Where I develop those skills, that is always an open question. I love Ohio State, and uh, I could definitely see being here over the next six years to do that. There are always opportunities at other places that any professional always has to consider, right? You never know when, when that right opportunity will come up that will force you to make a decision. But that... That said, I, I, at this moment, I forgot that this, this podcast is going to be made public and broadcast everywhere. So I should say, hey, no, I really, uh, I'll stay at Ohio State. I'm not trying to signal <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> Get that pin, I hear you. <laughs> well, just to kind of wrap things up, Chris, where can our audience find you online? A couple of places. So probably the, the most central location is you just do a Google search for Christopher Charles Stewart and that will bring up my the webpage, uh, my webpage and my lab's webpage, uh, the Reroute Lab, which is www.cse.ohio-state.edu slash tilde C. Stewart. Uh, so that's the, the full URL to my, my homepage. From there, you can find links to the Google Plus page for my lab. Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, as well as page for lab, Twitter accounts, etc. All of that is linked from there, along with bios and pictures and recent research publications. All right. Dr. Christopher Charles Stewart, thank you again so much for taking time out of your day for this interview. It was just really good to hear about, you know, the research that you're doing and, you know, what you do with recruiting and things like that. Thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really, really a pleasure, really an honor. And I'm so happy for you. I think this is a, a, a really great podcast that you've set up, and, and I encourage you to continue and, and keep it up. Thank you, Maureen. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Dr. Stewart, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to thank our sponsor, MailChimp, as well, for supporting Revision Path. They're a really great company here in Atlanta, and they reign supreme when it comes to email marketing for designers and small businesses. Visit them at MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account. Make sure to vote for our two presentations for South by Southwest 2015 and participate in our $50 Amazon.com gift card giveaway. Uh, we're looking for interns and guest bloggers for the site as well. Details are available on our website. Just scroll to the bottom of the page and click on Internships or Write for Us for more information. Are there any topics that you want us to cover in a future blog post? Send us an email at mail at revisionpath.com and let us know. 
Provision Path is a 318 Media project. If you like these interviews and the other content we're providing, then help keep it going. Just visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate, leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level and show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.